Hello, welcome to The Lore You Know, a show where we chat with some amazing human beings who are storytellers, collectors, and folklorists as we discuss the history of, inspiration behind, and importance of recording and sharing regional tales. Today, I have with me author James Willis. Hi! Hey there, how are you? I am doing really well. It's uh, on YouTube, they won't be able to tell, but it's been well over a month since we recorded any episodes. And uh, yeah, it, it's uh, it's exciting to be back, but also jarring. <laughs> <laughs> I hear that, yeah. Yeah, um, thanks for being so flexible, by the way, uh, for rescheduling with me a few times here to, to get this to happen. Not a problem. Not a problem. Oh, man. Okay, so I briefly alluded to that you're an author. Can you tell our audience what all you do in the uh, cryptid community, kind of your connection to the strange and unusual? Wow. Um, yeah. It's a I, small question, really. I. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, Yes, I am an author. Um, I've authored or co-authored 16 books on all sorts of weird, strange things. Um, I I was a weirdo from the beginning. I I kind of got my start. um, I was was born and raised in the Hudson Valley of New York State in the shadow of the Catskill Mountains. So at a very, very early age, even though I didn't know it was even called folklore at that point, I was exposed to that as well as the writings of uh, Washington Irving, um, who brought in a whole bunch of folklore. He incorporated it into his stories. Um, but the the whole area, since it was founded by the, the Dutch, just when they came over, they brought all of their folklore with them and it got incorporated into the area. Now, I'm talking about a, dating myself, but I was like seven, eight, nine years old and hearing these stories. And I, like I said, I didn't even know it was folklore at, at that point in time, but I just became fascinated with all of it. Um, particularly the darker ones. So the, the more the ghost lore and the monsters and, and, and things of that nature. And most of the stories were centered around the mountains, that they were these sort of magical places. I mean, one of my favorite is that we, they, uh, they still have Storm King Mountain, that the story was that when his, you know, that he was an actual living, breathing mountain, and that when his beard or clouds came down across his chest, it was going to rain. So these sort of stories about these mountains were just fascinating to me. And then you start finding all of these folktales within the Catskill Mountains that these mountains are sort of inhabited by these creatures. And it was everything from a, now looking back, a very hollow earth sort of thing where there were giants in there. But then there were a lot of the European sort of folktale things where there were little people and brownies and those sort of things that were hiding in these mountains. So I I became obsessed with that. And as I started trying to dig into the folklore and realizing, oh, wait, these these are folktales. They're not even from our country. They've just been incorporated. That's when I started to see how these folktales over time were sort of, I like to say mutated because it sounds creepier that way, but they were being updated and changed and combined with real life events that were sort of creating, usually referred to as urban legends now, but like the modern folktales, you know, and for that, I always go back to Washington Irving because when he, got me started in all this with his Rip Van Winkle and the Catskill Mountains. Washington Irving had never even been to the Catskill Mountains when he wrote Rip Van Winkle, but yet he pulled in the folklore and he liked what the area sounded like. Um, For his legend of Sleepy Hollow, Sleepy Hollow, Terrytown exists. The, The locations, the bridge, the cemetery, they're all there. He even borrowed (laughs) names of characters from the cemetery and so that was that blurring of the lines was what really got me into this um 
And I just loved the stories and loved sharing them. And so I would just write short stories about them. I would go out and try to find, I would hear a ghost story or I'd hear something about a, a monster and I would go back in and say, okay, well, what can I trace back to the historical really did occur element? What is folklore that's been incorporated into it? And then where did that folklore come from? Was there that kernel of truth in it that I could then go down that rabbit hole with? Um, and I was just years later, I had moved to um, Ohio via Georgia. It's another weird story for another weird day. It's why my accents all over the place, but, um, and started looking at the folklore in Ohio and how that pulled in. And I, I had fallen in love with ghosts and it started, I was arrogant, naive enough to be like, I'll start my own group. And that was in 1999. And I'm still naive enough to figure that part out. But um, but along the way, I started, you know, I had a, uh, a website, I had a GeoCity site that I would just share yeah. my stories yeah. there. And that grew into um, Mark and Mark, um, the two brainchilds of Weird New Jersey, um, had contacted me and asked me to contribute some stories to their Weird US book. And from there, when I realized, wait, you're you're going to pay me to go venture out across and look for these things? Um, so that was my dream came true. And that's what sort of led to all of the, the books. Um, so that's where I ended up, where I ended up. I owe it all to uh, growing up in the weird little area that I did. And I encourage all of your listeners or viewers, if you've never been to the Hudson Valley in New York state, especially in the fall, go up there because you will just walk into that everywhere in that area and just go, it's a weird place. There's <laughs> weird stuff going on there. And you can look at, I mean, from that area, you could go in any direction and find weird folk tales that have been incorporated into urban legends. I mean, all within a stone's throw. I mean, we were not that far from New Jersey and you could go right into the Pine Barrens where there's the Pineys have their own <laughs> folklore and folk tales. They've got the Jersey devil there. You can, we were maybe two hours from Pennsylvania. You can wander out to all that high strangeness that uh, Stan Gordon is doing a wonderful job of combining there. So th there's just, weirdness and folktales all along that area right there that I fell in love with. Yeah. And I hope I answered your question no, you did. with all of that rambling I did. No, that was great. So like, um, how were you first introduced to Washington Irving? Was it something that a family member brought to your attention? Did you find it in school? Just you stumbled across it at a library? It was a, it was a combination of the fact that um, I was reading at a fifth grade level in kindergarten and my mom, bless her, um, she got me in, in kindergarten, we got to go to the school library and there was that little section that we, that's where you could get the, the picture books from. And my mom actually was able to get me permission where I could go, I could get a book from anywhere in that library. And that was just like magic to me. And because they encourage my weirdness. I always wanted to find the book that nobody had taken out of the library. You know, it's, it's mm. again, dating myself. The, 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 my daughter calls it the old fashioned days where you used to have to pull the card yeah, out and, and they stamped. would stamp the back mm -hmm. of the book. Yeah. Yeah. I always wanted, I would look for the dustiest, oldest book, usually up on the top shelf that people hadn't taken out before. And then I would flip to the back and look for the stamps. And if it had been checked out in like two years, I wanted to read that book because it was like uncovering this forgotten stuff. So I was introduced to Washington Irving maybe when I was six or seven. And then the folklore aspect kicked in in third grade when we got to go on the class field trip to Terrytown to Sleepy Hollow. Nice. And my teacher decided they were going to have a bit of fun with the class and were working really hard to convince the class that it was a true story. 
and brought us out and showed us the bridge and how the headless horseman couldn't cross the bridge and the cemetery and all the things that I was just rambling on about pointing out all the different names in the cemetery. And I was blown away until I got home and suddenly realized it's all BS that she, <laughs> they were, they were, they were funning with me. Um, mm -hmm. but that opened up that window, as I said to, okay, well, that ghost story is not all true, but what are the true aspects? And okay, that's not really Katrina Van Tassel's grave, but how did that get incorporated into the story? So that's how I fell into Washington Irving, which sent me down that weird, weird path of, I still remember my first ghost investigation was I read an article, I must've been about, eight or nine in the local newspaper, which was, they printed it once a week. It had the little league scores in it and that's pretty much about it. But the headline in on it was ghost reported in blooming grove mm. and blooming grove was basically uh, three minutes down the bottom of the hill from where <laughs> yeah. I lived. And so I'm reading this story and it's about a cemetery and a, a grave of a woman who murdered her own sister and, and I remember begging my dad to bring me out there so I could investigate. The investigation ended up being nothing more than my dad parking the car and chain smoking while I wandered around in a field. <laughs> but, 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 but to me, that was, that was an investigation. And I remember finding the woman's headstone and then saying, but wait, it's not where the story said it was supposed to be. And he kind of left out all these different parts of the story. So again, that was me without even knowing what I was doing, trying to unearth, no pun intended, um, <laughs> the whole idea of folklore, history, and where they intermingle. Yeah. Did, um, were you able to find out if she was actually murdered by her sister? From what I found, um, no, she was not. Um, I which mean, that's again good, I guess. leads <laughs> to where did that come from? Right. Um, it was a very, yeah, it's um, the, I, I often point to that article as what set me, uh, was when I officially had it in my tiny little head that I'm going to figure this out. And that's the story, the article that I always point to as being the one. I, looking back, a lot of the historical information in that story does not appear to be quite true right right but it didn't but it's still something that i point to because it has less sure. to do with it's more about the enduring aspect and how the effect it had on the the little child i once was yeah so you mentioned that you started writing short stories that kind of incorporated these elements that you were learning yes. from the things you were reading and investigating and um what are some of the short stories like what are some of the topics that you covered in some of your earliest short stories wow they were pretty much bastardizations of the <laughs> legend of sleepy hollow and they were not they were not very very good and that they were abandoned rather quickly because i found the actual history more mm -hmm. fascinating than anything that i could create and I often tell people when they're like, wow, you write all those books. You must be a really good writer. And I'm like, I don't know if I am, but I'm a damn good storyteller. And my writing style is I have to get it out of my head, which is kind of neat because people who know me and read my books, they're like, I can hear you reading this story to me. And that's <laughs> what I love. It's because I just... I didn't start out to want to be a writer. It was just hearing these stories and wanting to become the king of meaningless trivia. You know, so I, I'm always like when, when yeah. people are like, wow, look at that bridge. That was really, oh, I'm like, did you know that was a crybaby bridge? But nothing really happened with the baby on that bridge. But there was a guy who fell and they're like, yeah, okay, that's real nice. You know, yeah. I like to say if nothing else, I'm a good storyteller and, I, and I'm, People normally want to buy me a drink or two, you know, because the stories oh. get better. As it yeah. goes along. <laughs> That's how that works. That sounds there like a go. good way to be. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, so 
of the different places that you've investi- investigated, however, uh, whether actually walking out into the field to check things out or doing something a little more in depth, what's been your favorite place that you've uh, taken time to explore? Wow. Um, there's a lot. Um, it's, it's always interesting when I look at my sort of ghost life <laughs> and my folklore historian life because i find that my fan base is right along that razor's edge and i find that when i go into a place and say well you know the legend is that this woman in a white dress haunts this bridge the folklorists the historians the ghost hunters, they're all cool with that. But if I take it a step further and say, and I got this quote unquote evidence that to me suggests this ghost is real. The folklorists and the historians tend to throw up their hands and go, wait, the ghosts do not exist. They are folklore or they are just reality TV. And they, they get angry with me and pelt me with rocks and garbage. The ghost people <laughs> are in love with me. Now, yeah. if I go down the other path and I say, okay, same ghost, but she's directly from folklore that was pulled from this location and added here and stuff. The historians and the folklorists are like nicely done. The ghost people want to pelt me with the rocks and garbage. So it, it's right. always, I, I have to walk that very, thin line. I tend to also get in trouble with the ghost community because I openly admit I believe them. I believe that ghosts exist. I've experienced enough odd things, but to flip that, I don't know what they are. And I don't think anybody can say they actually know what they are because if somebody knew exactly what they were, we couldn't doubt they existed. I get in a lot of trouble for that, but I believe it's true. And I also believe in order to be taken seriously, you have to admit from a ghost perspective, there's a lot of BS in this field. You know, there, there, there just is. And I mean, it's, it's entertaining and I get it. But for me, when I go into these locations and I, I come out with things that uh, from my group, wh- uh, what we do is we go on an investigation, we come back from it and we divide up all the, equipment, uh, the audio, the video, the photographs, we each review it. And then once a month we get back together and we say, what do you think we got from this? And then we present our evidence. And like, I like to say that we all fight because my group (laughs) is actually made up of total skeptics to total believers. And I handpick them for that reason, because at the end of the day, I want, if we all walk away from say a piece of video, and the total skeptic and the true believer all say, we don't know what that is. That's the nuggets that I'm looking for. Right. Um, the things where you're like, I can't explain what these things are. So to answer your question, <laughs> there have been um, there have been numerous places that I've gone to um, that I've walked out saying there is something here. Um, Waverly Hills in a... Uh, Louisville, there is there is definitely something there. That's where I had my infamous encounter with the creeper or whatever that was that I still have no <laughs> idea. I don't believe in the creeper, but I also cannot explain what happened yeah. to me there. Um, I've the again blaming Washington Irving, but I Irving, but I've become obsessed with headless ghosts. Yeah, I don't know. Me why. too. But but in Ohio, for whatever reason, we have a lot of headless motorcycle ghosts. And and for me, the most fascinating thing is the two most popular ones are the Elmore Rider, who is in Elmore, Ohio. You're supposed to see in both locations, you're supposed to see this light from his motorcycle come down the road now in elmore you're supposed to go there on a specific night and stand in a specific place and you'll see something i've been there numerous times 
never seen anything. Uh, the story now is that the, the bridge that supposedly crosses over is in a different place. People, are, I've been to all these places and I've never had anything happen. Interestingly enough, the very first time that I was ever able to find the legend of the, you know, the story, where you go and what you do was in the Ohio Folklore Society's journal. So, so that led me to believe. Ooh, well, where did that come from? And I, I have since I, I did get to meet um, Richard Gill, who was a, a teacher, who had actually put the story in the journal um, up in Bowling Green, and and have met and become friends with his son. Um, and the story just seemed to originate there. Now I say all that because the other ghost, headless ghost, is in Oxford, Ohio. So you're on the other side of the state. Yeah. Same basic story, but you can go to the Oxford one. You have to be there at just just the right time, where I always mm -hmm. say that's usually when I'm at there. Yeah. Um, but I have seen that light mm. numerous times. I've seen it alone. I've seen it with um, family and friends. Uh, my wife and daughter have both seen it with me, and I can't figure out what it is. And I have, it's, it's interesting because my wife's family and, and my wife, um, they lived in Oxford, Ohio. Um, her parents, uh, my wife's parents still live in Oxford. So every time we go down to visit them, we stop to see if we can see the headless motorcycle light. And it, it is the strangest thing because it's, like I said, I've seen it so many times. I have it on video. It's interesting. I do, um, in October, I travel all over the state and give like presentations and show my evidence for people to kind of look at. That always gets audible gasps when I show it because it's not even a blink and you'll miss it. It's probably on video for about 15 seconds. Yeah, And during that time, every other aspect where people try to debunk it and they say, well, it's the, the light from the, uh, the barn that's mm -hmm. near the road, or it's one of these reflectors, or it's a car on another street. All of those are in the video that I show. So right. you can see that's the barn light that people say. And what it is, I, I don't know. So that's a place I continually go back to as what is that? You know, what, what is it? And it's, and it's led to other interesting aspects of it because while the Elmore story is, as I said, you have to go there at a specific time, Oxford, you just go there. And if you're there at night, basically, it always appears in the same area. It's in the opposite. It's coming towards you it's always on the same side of the road coming towards you. It's a big round light in the middle of the road coming oh. right towards you. There's never any sound. And then uh -huh. it just blinks out. It doesn't like kind of curve as if it's, you know, going around a corner or the first time I saw it in all honesty, I floored, I floored it because um, Miami university is in Oxford as well. So I was convinced when I got up to the spot where it had blinked out, I was going to see like a moped laying on right. the side of the road, a bunch of frat boys running off, you know, laughing. Sure. It never makes any sound. Um, if you drive on the other side of the road, which is where it normally appears, the light comes up behind you. What? It, it is just, yeah, it, is, it, it awesome. is the most bizarre thing. I've started to uncover, again, going back to the folklore thing, I've, I haven't found any an origin for the Oxford version other than I'm pretty convinced it was, it appeared in the folklore journal. And then that was distributed through all of the different universities that basically had a folklore society at the time. Right. So I think it started at Bowling Green, went to Columbus and then ended up in the journal down okay. in Oxford at Miami, Miami university. Mm -hmm. And someone said, Oh, this is kind of similar to what's out on that road, but right. it doesn't explain how you can actually see something there. And I should say that like all good urban legends, mm -hmm. <laughs> you're supposed to at each place, flash your headlights three times. Uh. We never do. 
we never yeah. do. You're supposed to also stop your car at the spot where the girlfriend's house was. There was never a house there. Yeah. there so it's fascinating to me because it almost seems like in Elmore, they might have just applied it to that road because one time somebody saw something. It then, I think, made its way to Oxford and they had an unexplained phenomena that they basically took the Elmore story and applied it to there so that all of a sudden this mysterious light made sense. But I, I always tell people when I tell the story about that light, I'm like, go there. So, you know, I, I'll give you directions. The only thing I ask is that don't flash your lights or honk your horn or do any of those things because mm -hmm. I wish, I wish that that's all you had to do to make a ghost appear. Right. But, <laughs> so it's not, it's not true, but don't stop your car and don't honk your horn or flash your lights. Just drive up and down the road. Mm -hmm. And we normally go up it maybe eight or 10 times and sometimes yeah. it works other times it doesn't, but that's something to go back to the question that you did ask me. Um, yeah. That's the one that I keep going back to because it's something that I can explore from both a folklore perspective as well as a historical perspective and a paranormal one as mm -hmm. well. So I can kind of take the three and sort of mix them together and and see what actually works you know what so we've i've we've gone down there in all different weather conditions at all times of the day or night we've even tried to go and when we were exploring the idea that okay this is actually just headlights from another car that are somehow being picked up we've gone out there when it's the it's daytime and it's raining yeah. Because we're like, okay, people are going to have their headlights on, so we'd be able to see the car and the headlight. It's never worked, so mm -hmm. it's, uh, yeah, it's it. That's the one that I keep going back to in terms of there's something here, but where did it come from? The Elmore one, I'm I'm convinced started as folklore, mm -hmm. because I've yet to have I've yet to meet anyone, and when I go out and try to collect these folklore. I, I try to do it both from a collecting it. I try to stay away from the internet nowadays, but it's, you know, I will try to look in all sorts of printed forms to pick that up. But then I will also try to give one-on-one -on -one interviews whenever possible, because um, when I was writing um, Ohio's historic haunts, which was like, I call it my Sergeant Peppers, because that was, um, I, I did it with Kent State University, so it was kind of cool that they were actually backing a ghost yeah. book. And what I wanted to do was, again, show how the history of a place, that some buildings that are historically significant gain a reputation as being haunted. And that sometimes that comes from folklore, sometimes it comes from personal experiences. But even if you can't find evidence of that ghost story being real you can still walk away from it with actual history you know you can learn about the building those sort of things but for that when i it came to for each chapter i wrote it in third so each location the first third was nothing but straight ahead history the second third were the one-on-one -on -one interviews and then the third was me getting locked in the buildings overnight to see if i could have experiences but um for the interviews i purposely did not want to interview ghost groups i wanted to i it wasn't hey i read on the, the internet that this person said that this person it was i wanted to be able to sit across the table from someone and have them tell their story one because i wanted to tell anybody who read the stories in the book because yeah. they inevitably asked they were like did that person really have that encounter? And I would always answer, I, I don't know. But they believe they did. Right. Because I looked them dead in the eye and I never called BS. They believed they had that personal encounter. And that's what I think is the strength of ghost stories. And having those one-on-one -on -one interviews is mm -hmm. because you can tell when people yeah. are trying to pull your leg or when they've actually been like, I don't, I don't know what that was. <laughs> Right. But it scared me. You know, it's, 
I hear it all the time where people come up to me and they're like, you look for ghosts and Bigfoot. That's ridiculous. Those, those things don't exist. That, you know, it's all a bunch of garbage and stuff. But, you know, there was that one time where I was actually, and then they tell you this ridiculous story where you're like, see, see, so you were mocking me, but something did happen to you. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, the, um, how did Kent State get behind all that? How did that all fall into place? They actually, yeah, it, 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 I was blown away by it. And it's, people always think I'm making it up when they're like, well, how did you, you know, how, do, how can I write a book? How can I get published? And I'm like, I, I don't know. And they're like, oh, you're, you're a jackhole, Willis. And I'm like, no, I, I honestly don't know. With, with all of the weird books that I've written, that was just uh, Mark Moran reaching out to me and then going like, you have a weird eye, um, which I now take as a compliment. But, um, mm -hmm. but when it came to Ohio's historic haunts, they reached out to me and they said, you know what? We are looking to come up with a they wanted to back a ghost book is what they said. And they said, we want it to be in Ohio because it's actually coming out through their Ohio imprint, black squirrel, mm -hmm. but that they wanted it to be something that was, that had historic significance and was not, I believe they said reality TV based. Right. And that when they were looking for authors to possibly work with, my name kept coming up with all of the with i think it was weird ohio at the time or all of these weird books were coming up as well as my ghosts of ohio so they started saying and you seem to be the premier paranormal <laughs> investigator and i'm like uh cool i guess but yeah. but they said they said do you have any ideas as to the type of book we, you know, the format that right. you would approach it to. And I said, oh yeah, I do. And that was my idea that historic buildings yeah. become known as being haunted. And and when I presented that, they were like, yeah, let's, let's run with it. I mean, they've been, we have been in the works to try to get the second one mm -hmm. to come out. The problem with that is other than COVID and other things is that Ohio's historic haunts almost turned me into a ghost because that was about three years worth of active research. Okay. I think there were 22,000. There was just ridiculous because for each one, I not only had to do all of the interviews, mm -hmm. dig up all the history, but then I had to spend the night locked in these places with all the fancy equipment and video and audio. And then I had to go back and review all of that. So okay. it took about, three years but it's the one book that I, I i'm i'm proud of all my books but that's the one i'm the most proud of because mm -hmm. both the historians and the ghost people tend to look at that collectively and go i get what he's trying to do and he's not making a mockery of the ghosts or the history so right. that's the one that i kind of hold up when i'm getting attacked you know and defend myself <laughs> you know <laughs> It's rather thick too, so you know it. Mm -hmm. It kind of prevents serious damage. <laughs> yeah, it's a good shield. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we we talked about ghosts and hauntings. Let's shift to cryptids for a second, because sure. I remember you telling me that you are obsessed currently with Loveland, right? Yes. Yes, <laughs> I am. I, I not. I have been ever since. Oh, okay. <laughs> ever since 1999 when I moved here because I had my short list of things that I wanted to check out as almost as soon as I like set foot in Ohio and the Loveland frog was one because I've you know between New York New York and then Georgia they've all got Bigfoot Mm -hmm. Big feet, big foots. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Fast watches, Sam Squanches, yeah. if it's uh, the trailer park boys. Anyway, um, <laughs> they've all got similar cryptids. I've right. always been fascinated with, like the Jersey Devil. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, because that's unique. It's like a, what is that? You know, like a Mothman. It's kind of like, okay, they're kind of one-offs. Like, where are they right. coming from? You know, Hopkinsville goblins. Where, you know, where do these all mm -hmm. fit in? The Loveland Frog was just like, wait a second, because he's always described as this human-sized, half-man, half-frog, mm -hmm. 
creature that yes. when I first saw the the sketches of it, I'm like, get out of here. That's, that's ridiculous. <laughs> you know, and it and at that point it just became like a joke. I'm like, no. But the they always say he he it uh, was first sighted in nineteen fifty-five, but that the big sightings were in nineteen seventy-two. If you look at the 1972 sightings, what was intriguing to me is there were two separate sightings, but they were both police officers. Hmm. And I was like, oh, okay, well, that's that kind of raises the bar a little bit now, um, including one who actually, which to me, I always, when I tell this story, I'm like, here's the nightmare fuel. There was a, <laughs> the one police officer was driving along, you know, outside of, uh, along the Little Miami River. Uh, on the road at night and he came around a turn and he saw this dark shape in the road and he said that he thought that someone had hit a dog or a deer or something like that and so he got out of the car to drag the animal off to the side of the road and it stood up oh. and it was the Loveland frog and he shot at it you know and, he, and the story is that it it hopped or walked or Sauntered. I, I don't know what a, a, a frog does, but over to the guardrail and then hopped over it, and he heard a splash in a little my. So that I was like, wait a second, that's pretty cool. Um, and the more you dig, and again going back to my trying to figure out, well, where did this come into play? It was just some sort of folklore. I mean, if you drive anywhere along in Loveland, along the Little Miami River, you will hear the largest frogs I'm sure ever created. They are just yeah. so loud. So I, I was convinced it had something to do with folklore. You know, you know, you go down there and there's the king of the frogs down there. But <laughs> I was like, but wait, a police officer shot at it and two it was another police officer who saw it as well. When you dig into those reports, the creature that is described, and it's always in that version, the Loveland frog, not the frog man, just mm. the Loveland frog. Mm -hmm. It's because in those initial police reports or when it actually hit the newspapers, it was the size of like an iguana. Oh. or a lizard that was on all fours yeah. in fact over time the one police officer said that you know they kept changing their stories um and the last that i had heard was that he claimed it was a tailless iguana and that he had shot it and killed it and brought it back to the police station to be like look this is what it is i don't find any record other than him saying that back in I'm probably going to get it, but in, in the two thousands. Mm -hmm. So many, many years after that, but, um, I kept going back to, okay, well, but they always say in 1955. Mm -hmm. So what did this creature look like? By the by, why all of this is going on for whatever reason, I only think it's because maybe they like Godzilla a lot or something, but Japan goes nuts for the Loveland frog. You can go <laughs> online and find like Loveland frog, like tea towels and all oh, of wow. this stuff that is just, you know, and you'll see like famous monsters, you know, and it's got um, all of these like different creatures, some of which don't exist, but you know, you've got like Mothra and then yeah. Godzilla and then like son of Godzilla and the Loveland frog. And you're like, what? And in all of these, he's this giant man-sized creature. Yeah. In 1955, I was able to go back to that year and find the original, the first reported sighting of what is called the Loveland Frog Man. Mm -hmm. it, it's a totally different creature. Um, the... Um, they often refer to it and say it was a businessman who was out um, driving home from work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And um, it was actually a guy who worked at a restaurant who was driving home uh, through Loveland, was again kind of near 
the Little Miami River. But he saw what he thought were several. I love this. <laughs> this is the fifties. The um, I believe he called them freaks or hippies, but I don't know if hippies was actually a term back then. Um, yeah. Kneeling alongside of the road. And the okay. reason he thought that they were kneeling was because they were only about four foot high. Mm-hmm. When he got closer, there were several of them and they weren't kneeling. That was as high as they were. So you're clearly already not dealing with a Loveland frog on all fours. These right. were ones that the descriptions almost match aliens. Mm-hmm. They are in silver suits that he said that if they were in costumes or, or outfits or spacesuits or whatever, that they matched the skin because it was, they were all a uniform color. Um, the only reference, which I believe is why it became that they were frogmen, is because when he describes the mouth of these creatures, if you will, he said it was long and straight like a frog's. Mm. But every other description, it's weird because he said they had like, their stomachs were like distended almost out that they were kind of like crooked. But then the one that was standing in the front of the other creatures held up a rod that blue spark shot out of, mm-hmm. at which point he decided to, to take his leave. But oddly enough, the first place he went was to the home of a local law enforcement officer that he knew mm-hmm. banged on the door and was like, I don't know what's going on out there. And the police <laughs> officer went out there and they said that the only thing which is still weird to me is that they said it smelled like burnt alfalfa. Hmm. but that there was no sign of any of these creatures. So I started looking from a, you know, these changing of the stories and you have common elements. You've got police officers shooting at the Loveland frog and you've got a police officer going out to investigate the frog men, which I don't think were frog people at Hmm. all, but they're two totally different creatures. You know, like I said, the one from 1955, you could make a leap and go, that tends to have more in common with the Hopkinsville Hopkinsville Goblin Mm -hmm. than this 1972 iguana-like thing. So that leads you down the path and go, well, you're not that far from Loveland to go down to Hopkinsville. Or if you yeah. want to go back up the other way, back towards my old stomping grounds, you've got things like the Dover Demon and all of these other creature mm-hmm. cryptid that you're like, I don't think the frog and the frog man are, is, is the same creature. They're they're yeah. not. They're two totally different ones. So so yeah. I become obsessed with the, the Loveland frog as well as collecting all of these strange little loveland frog things i have no idea outside i mean outside of japan he's popular all over the place um he might actually be you know if you ever see the 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 maps where they've got the uh you know the the famous cryptid from each state you know they've got them on there nine times out of ten it's the loveland frog yeah and he's he's always big (laughs) they basically They basically make them about man size yep yeah so the Mm -hmm. wand was only in the 1955 the, mm-hmm. the man-like stature, the two webbed feet, that's yeah. from the 1955 si- sightings, even though I'd have to go back and look, but I don't think in 1955 he saw feet at mm-hmm. all. But mm-hmm. those are clearly men. There, There's nothing in the descriptions other than the mouth that makes it frog-like. Wow. So I'm really trying to dig into that 1955 one yeah. because I, I think... The 1972 was like a one-off, right? Um, and I think either it was something that he really did shoot and kill, mm-hmm. or he did shoot and he, he killed it. But when it hopped over the guardrail, it went into the water and disappeared. So, man, that's really interesting. That I don't honestly, even though living in Ohio, I I didn't know a ton about the Loveland Frogman, and so when I messaged you about it, and I'm like the wand. <laughs> You're like that's not in that's not in all the stories. <laughs> oh, yeah, the, yeah, the wand is just out there, and the fact that, I mean, it's the middle of the night, and the guy got out of his car to look mm-hmm. at these things, and he got a really good look at them. 
Yeah. It, but it's like, I don't know if I would have done that, but definitely when that, when he raises that wand and the sparks come out, I'm like, yeah. yeah. And it's not like yeah. in some of the things where it's got like a magic wand kind of thing, like he's <laughs> casting a spell in the sketch and in his description, he holds it up above his head, the creature. Okay. And the other three are just, I think there were four together, but the others that were kind of in an inverted V behind him were yeah. just kind of staring at it the whole time. So yeah, it, I don't know what that was. That's weird. Oh man. Um, so at the end of every show, I always ask my guests to tell me a story, which you have been telling me the Loveland story, <laughs> but um, I am wondering from where you grew up, are there any stories that have stuck with you that you could recount to me that we haven't already covered? I'm sure there are. So let me, I, from my childhood, I think it is probably, it was on the outskirts of Monroe, New York, mm -hmm. and it was called uh, Felter Hill Road. Okay. And that road had every urban legend you could possibly think of was on that road. So the hook man was on that road. There was a crybaby bridge on that road and it was a rite of passage to try to get from the beginning of Felter Hill Road. And of course it wound, you know, there were a couple of houses on it, but it was mainly woods and you wound your way all the way to the end. And it was a rite of passage, you know, it was legend tripping before it existed, <laughs> but you had to, when you would go down there, you had to make it to the other end. And I remember being like a kid just driving past the Felter Hill Road sign and just yeah. being freaked out because <laughs> there was the, the added wrinkle, which was unique to Felter Hill Road with all these other things that were going on. You know, and you weren't supposed to park your car in a certain place and all these different you know urban legends. But the one unique aspect is that, and I don't remember if it was a ghost or just a, a spooky woman. But this one particular house, if you went by there, it was going to be, she would be in the front window. And again, don't know if she was ghostly or not, but she was playing this old organ. And you would hear like this spooky kind of, you know, I guess Phantom of the Opera type music. I don't know, something. But it was like, yeah. that was part of the thing. Like people would come back and go, I saw her. I saw her in the window, you know, and I we parked the car on the side and the hook man came for us and stuff like that. Well, um, I was probably 16 when I was able to finally go down there without, you know, parents, because that mm -hmm. defeats the point of the whole legend right. trip if your parents are with you and <laughs> went down there and it was a spooky road, you know, and the bridge was okay, but there was nothing really there. I didn't hear any of the things, you know, I didn't hear the lady playing the organ and was a little disappointed and came back and I had told my dad who my dad till his dying day he had no idea what he encouraged what i did but he had no idea of this yeah. stuff. he was like eh, yeah i don't know what the heck you're doing um <laughs> but i came back and i told him i was like there was supposed to be all this scary stuff and i went down there and stuff like that and and he was just shaking his head at me and then i said but but the big thing is there was supposed to be a lady and she was going to play the the organ and stuff like that it turns out that my dad knew her she was an actual woman who just played the organ. So it was, it was no, <laughs> there was nothing scary remotely yeah. about it. She was a real woman. You know, she was still alive. Mm -hmm. um, I actually ended up, I went to school with his, her son and didn't even know it because Felter oh, Hill wow. Road was named after the Felter family. Mm -hmm. So it was another thing that it was crushed. But, um, but that, again, was something that just stuck with me that yeah. that's the road. And I remember being too young to drive or to do anything, but just going past that and knowing the stories and having three older sisters that like to frighten me about it, just being petrified of yeah. the Felter Hill Road, the little green sign there. So Yeah, that's awesome. How, how long is that road? It's not very long at all. I would say maybe a mile or so. I don't, yeah. I haven't been down there in decades and i know they were starting to build the, the the area just sprung up i know they were start they were thinking about extending it back so i'm not sure if you would go down the road now if you would have the same 
thing of driving along the, the field where that was the other thing things were supposed to come through the field at you and a lot of things that now when i hear the stories in ohio i'm like yeah. that's felter hill road you mm -hmm. just broke them apart the things coming across the field and the hook man on bloody mary lived down the road it, just, it was all there it was yeah that makes it fun though it's like you said it does storytelling. It, it really does you know and it 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 encouraged me to dig into history, you know, and and that's what I feel I try to do to even today is to keep that weird history alive, you know, and 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 just bring it, keep it first and foremost because that's you can trick a lot of kids into reading, and going places and learning about history if you make it really weird. I'm proof of that even from the little kid climbing up on the high bookshelves in the library to I made a career out of just going to these weird places. And and so far my daughter's about to turn 12, but so far I'm still a little cool according yeah. to her. So I think I've Good. been able to extend my coolness out right. just a year or two further with all this <laughs> weird stuff. That's awesome. Uh, well, thank you for taking time to talk with me today. It has Where... been my pleasure. <laughs> I'm so excited. I'm excited to meet you um, hopefully <laughs> soon for uh, Jersey Devil stuff. Yes. Um, where can the listeners and viewers find your latest projects and keep tabs on what you're up to? So like stalk me, you mean? Yeah, yeah. Okay. How, does okay, that, cool, how can cool. they do that? Make it as easy as possible. Um, if you are... Um, interested in all this the weird stuff that i'm into uh, my website is strange and spooky world.com mm -hmm. um, if you just like the ghost stuff it's ghostsofohio.org and uh, i'm on all of the social media things that i really don't understand but you can here's the neat thing if you type weird willis into a search engine <laughs> you get me <laughs> So if, if you're just like, well, what was that? If you just remember Weird Willis and you will find me all over the place. Um, but if you go to any of those sites or any of my social media things, it's got a calendar of events of all the different um, places I'm going to speak. And that's what I actually enjoy the most because I get to bring my evidence. I don't tell you it's a ghost. I don't tell you it's a mantra. I just show you the stuff. And that's what I love doing the most because I get to meet people in person. We, we finally can do that again. Um, yeah. But also to hear their stories, because that's what I think I'm really in this for, is because mm -hmm. my stories are just my stories, but I love hearing other people's experiences. So yeah, yeah. just type in Weird Willis, you'll find me. Awesome, awesome. Uh, well, guys, uh, like, subscribe, become a channel member. Um, you can rate and review this on podcast platforms. Uh, if you have anything you want to talk to me about, any suggestions for guests or anything like that, you can email me, heather at smalltownmonsters.com. Um, and until next time.